Luke 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some in the racks right down there in front of you by your feet. You can turn there. I don't have a page number for you. Don't feel bad if you feel that you need to use the table of contents. That's what it's there for. Uh, Otherwise, the words will be up on the screen just a little bit later. Uh, So Luke chapter 11, you can turn there and uh, then we'll get going. But as you're turning there, let's just pause for a word of prayer and we can ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we can say it is well with our soul. We might have walked in here with a, a bunch of stuff, a bunch of junk. I don't know what's on the hearts and minds of the people that you have gathered here this morning. I know what's on my heart. I know what's on my mind. I know the sin that, that so just ravages my life. Sometimes um, I can say it's well. Sometimes I, I foolishly think it's well and it's not well. Lord, I, I, a lot of times I, I just kind of want to do things on my own and do it my own way. And I know I'm not alone in that confession here this morning. Lord, maybe there are some here today that kind of like we talk about keeping our eyes on you and this, this blind man receiving sight. And we're like, I, just, I, don't, I don't see. I, I just, there may be some people here this morning that just don't see spiritually. Lord, I pray that you would give them sight today. Maybe like this blind man, the, the plea is to restore sight. And restore sight spiritually, Lord. Lord, I've, I've, I've taken my eyes off of you. Place them back on you today. I need you to do that for me by your work, by your spirit's power. Because if left up to me, I'd want to do my own thing and go my own way. So, Lord, whatever it is here this morning that we brought in here, I, Lord, I pray by the power of your spoken word that we can leave here today truly confessing that it is well with our soul because we've seen Jesus, and that's enough. We pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen. I recently uh, heard a story about a businessman who was having uh, an international flight and about halfway over the Atlantic from New York to Paris, it was time for the the in-flight meal to be served. And so the flight attendant brought the meal to him and kind of placed it right on his tray table right there in front of him. And uh, he was famished, and so he started to peel back the the lid uh, to to start digging into his meal, and, and he was completely surprised by what he saw. Gang, this wasn't a larger portion than the other people sitting around him. Uh, It wasn't an extra piece of dessert, which would be awesome too. No, uh, to his amazement, he actually saw a roach in the middle of his salad. Yeah, some of you just went, ew, right? Like, he had the same reaction. He didn't go like, he didn't go like this. He didn't go like, oh, great, some protein. He He didn't do that. He was disgusted. He was angry. He was frustrated. And instead of hitting the little button up top to call the flight attendant to his seat, he just yelled out her name. And, and then she came running. She just she got ripped into by this guy. And he started complaining right in front of everybody. And, and, and he started to tell everybody else up there in first class to be really careful about what they're eating and just to be extra cautious. And by the time the flight was over, uh, he had already sent a scathing email to the president of the airline. A week went by, and thinking that he would never hear anything at all from the the airline about what happened, he was blown away to actually receive a handwritten letter from the president of the airline 
complaining, uh, like apologizing for everything that was going on. And gang, this was like dripping with apologies. And it said stuff like this, we've taken immediate action and the airline will stay grounded until we find another food provider. The flight attendant has been put on probation. You have our word. And then the letter closed by saying this, this will never happen again, sir. Never happen again. You have my guarantee. Your business is important to us, so you have my sincerest and deepest apologies. And I hope that you fly with us again in the near future. Needless to say, this, this businessman was impressed. He thought to himself, like, well, maybe I reacted a little too harshly. I mean, everybody makes mistakes in life. Heck, I make mistakes. And he vowed in that moment not to give this incident another moment of his time until he noticed something else. As soon as he took that letter and started to put it back in the envelope, something fell out. And it was a little post-it note which had another note attached to it, which read, Sharon, please send this guy the standard roach letter. Ugh. Ugh. That's going to make you think about getting food on your next flight, right? But I want you to think about that type of response. I may as well think about it. This letter sounded really good, didn't it? He used all the right phrases and he struck the right tone in the right moment. And gang, this letter was handwritten. It was personal. It took time. But the truth is, it was nothing more than routine action filled with meaningless words. And as I heard that story, I, I, I thought if we're not careful, the exact same thing could actually be true about our prayers. Gang, our prayers could become routine. And listen up, Emmaus Road, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching against here in Luke chapter 11. Remember, these are Jewish men. These are his disciples. They've been around prayer their whole life. The problem is they've become so familiar with the types of prayers around them that the spiritual discipline had actually become routine. You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about routine prayers, don't you? A lot of us learned how to pray when we were kids, little kids, and our prayers, uh, our, our parents wanted our, our, us to say our prayers, and, and some of us were taught probably the, the worst prayer in the history of prayers, right? You already know what I'm about to say, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. Now, any kid that's taught that prayer should immediately be thinking, what happens when I go to sleep in this house that I need to pray that I would actually wake up in the morning, that the Lord would sustain me? Like, is everything, like, okay when I go to sleep? I mean, I'm six. Come on. Maybe, maybe you've heard this one. Maybe you've heard this one before. Um, Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, right? Maybe you've, you've heard that one, or maybe if you want to be a little bit more spiritual, you pray a prayer like this before your kids dive into their really super ha- uh, you know, healthy happy meals at McDonald's, and you say, Lord, um, please bless this food to our bodies and the hands that prepared it, right? Um, I'm telling you, no amount of prayers are going to turn those nasty, greasy, artery-clogging burgers and fries into a healthy, happy meal that blesses the body, But you can say that if you want. Go ahead and and say that. Um, But rather, just like the disciples, you see, our problem is not that we don't know how to pray. We pray. 
We pray a lot. We're around prayer a lot. But the problem is, just like our disciples in this text, our problem is that we don't know how to pray. We don't know how. But that all changed. That all changed when they spent time with Jesus. Because, you see, they knew that Jesus' prayers weren't routine. They knew that Jesus' prayers weren't, weren't just rote prayers that he said over and over again. No, they were real. They were different. They were powerful. And here in Luke 11, they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so I've got some really good news for you here this morning. If you have a really hard time with prayer, if you in your own heart and mind say, I don't know how to pray, I don't really pray all that much, you know, I don't know what to say and how to say and when to say it and all this kind of stuff. If that's you here this morning in your own heart of hearts, you can make a really, really, really good disciple. Because these guys, after spending time and time and time with Jesus, they come to Jesus, and in verse 1 they say, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Now there's two things that I think are really huge here. That they're a really big deal. First, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus doesn't go, are you serious, dude? Like, you've been spending all this time with me. Prayer is like class 101. And I thought you were varsity material. That's why I picked you. No, he doesn't rebuke them at all. In fact, he's going to go and he's going to gently instruct these guys on how to pray. And here's the second thing that I think is huge. Of all the things that they've witnessed Jesus do and say and be about, remember, he's seen, they've, they've seen like tons of miracles, like, He raised the dead. He walked on water. He multiplied food over and over again. All these these miracles. And of all the things that they've witnessed, they asked Jesus this. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I don't know about you, but if I was a disciple back then, I'd be like, "Uh, Jesus, I've got some really sweet fishing holes um, that I can't access certain spots. And so if you could kind of teach me how to do that stunt that you did with Peter, you know, like walking on water, I'd, I'd, you know, man, my fishing game would like up, would, would be way up. Like, could you teach me how to do that? No, they, they ask, Lord, teach us how to pray. And maybe, just maybe, they knew intuitively that, that it was his connection with God the Father through prayer where his power is sourced. And so the request was, Lord Jesus, teach us, teach us to pray. And verse 2 says, and he said to them, when you pray, and he starts to teach them what we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer, he said, when you pray, say, Father. Now, here's what's crazy about this. This is, this is amazing to me. The disciples' question was framed like this. How do we pray? Like, Lord, how should we pray? They want details. They want pointers. But Jesus' answer to their how question was was to show them and to tell them who they're praying to. That's mind-blowing to me. Because Emmaus wrote, Jesus is teaching here that if you first get the who, the how just comes natural. If you first get the who, the how just comes natural. The whole answer to everything was just one word, Father. That's it. 
Because if you know God as Father, if you have a personal, intimate, close-knit relationship with the God of this universe, then you'll know how to pray. You'll know how to pray. Psalm 37.4 teaches, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, delight yourself in the Father more and more and more, and over time, his desires will become your desires, and that's what you'll pray for, and that's what you'll pray about. And some of you might be going, well, Pastor Andrew, um, my dad sucks. Like, I have a horrible father. You don't know what he's done to me. You don't know what he's currently doing. I hate that guy. Some of you might be there, in that place right now, in your relationship with your dad, with your father. And if I'm supposed to view God that way, screw him. I don't want any part. First of all, if that's you, I want you to know I'm really, really sorry that that's happened to you, that you've had to deal with or might be currently dealing with that in your life. That is not the way God intended it to be. Sin has so messed up this world that it's ravaged every part. It's touched everything. But second of all, I want you to know this, that that hole in your life, that missing father figure in your life can actually be filled by the true father of us all. He wants to show you the love that you crave. He wants to provide for you in all the ways that your, that your earthly father is not providing for you. And so in verse 2, he says to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not a word that we often use. It actually means holy. It means set apart. It means honored. In other words, it's a recognition that, God, you're sovereign over all, and I'm not. I don't have any power, but you do. It's not just a simple acknowledgement that since you have the power to do everything and anything you want to, Lord, would you just hook me up with the stuff I need? That's not what this is saying. Hallowed be your name means give me everything I need. Everything I need to make your name great and not mine. That's what I'm asking for. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. It's not give us what I want. That's not give me everything I want. It's give me everything I need to glorify your name. And then look at verse 4. It says, forgive us our sins. Why? Why? Because nothing glorifies God more, amen, than a sinner who repents and has his sins removed and washed and remembered no more, amen? Forgive us our sins, verse 4 says, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, when you boil all of this down, it basically means this, God, I need your help. God, I don't have what it takes. I need your help. If left up to me, I'm a dead man. I need your help. That's it. That's the whole Lord's Prayer given in the book of Luke. Now, in our adult Bible fellowship class at 915, we've spent the last number of weeks unpacking the Lord's Prayer, but not in Luke 11, uh, but actually in Matthew chapter 6. And there we see Jesus basically saying, when you pray, don't be like these religious show-offs who use a lot of big words and just repeat themselves over and over again to make themselves look smart and set apart and distinct. In fact, they just say this stuff over and over and over again. In fact, it's nauseating to me. That's my paraphrase. 
But instead, pray like this. But because we're just as foolish and sinful and idiotic like the people that Jesus was ripping into in Matthew 6, guess what we've done? Guess what we've done? We've taken the prayer that Jesus taught to pray in opposition to heartless routine prayers, and guess what we've done? Many have actually turned the Lord's Prayer into a heartless routine prayer that's prayed over and over and over again in services like this one, in places like this one. And how do I know that? Well, in Luke 11, Jesus messed up the Lord's Prayer, didn't he? Did you catch it? I mean, he, he, he says this. He, he didn't get all the words right. Jesus taught them to pray saying, Father, whoa, 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 whoa. It's our Father, Jesus. It's our Father. Come on, get your prayer right. Um, our Father, hallowed be your name. No, Jesus, it's actually thy name. It's thy name. You, you messed it up. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm so glad you're here to correct me. I could see Jesus saying that. Um, your kingdom come, but where's the will, your will be done part? Like, Jesus, you're messing up the prayer. And I kid you not, I talk with people and have heard people who have actually debated this kind of stuff. And they get the, the, the point of the prayer all wrong. You see, they miss the point. This is not a prayer that we should be praying routinely. It's God's greatest teaching on prayer in all of Scripture. And what he does in Luke 11 is what he's been doing over and over and over again in our series on parables. Because the word parable literally means to come alongside or to cast alongside. Because he does this to illustrate a deep theological teaching that might be too confusing if left to itself. And so here's the story. You ready? Verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, or a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now, when we hear this, we probably hear this really casually. We've got to put our, our, our minds back into first century Jerusalem. If you had a guest come and stay at your house, especially uh, someone from out of town who's come on a really long journey, and you couldn't provide the basic needs, just basic room and board for them, if you couldn't do that, you would be shamed in that community for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. Why? Because you had to love your neighbor as yourself, according to Leviticus 19.18. Why? Because Jesus loves you. God loves you. So you need to love your neighbor. And again, in the context of first century Jerusalem, when Rome was harshly occupying your homeland, it was literally, it, it literally could be the difference between life and death if you couldn't provide for them. And so as Jesus starts saying all of this, everybody who hears this parable starts feeling this sense of desperation. Like, oh my goodness, like, I can't imagine being caught with nothing in the pantry if this happens. Like, you bet, if somebody comes and shows up and I couldn't provide for them, if I didn't have enough food to feed them, you bet I would go to my neighbor. You bet, no matter what time at night, I would go there. No matter how much shame it would bring upon me, I would do this. I, I know exactly what this person is feeling. They would feel this sense of desperation. You see, when we feel a sense of desperation, we all pray, don't we? I don't know who you pray to, but we all pray. Which means this, listen up, gang. Prayerlessness 
is a gospel problem. Do you hear that? Prayerlessness is first and foremost a gospel problem. Fundamentally, the reason we don't pray like we ought to is because somehow we have taken our eyes off of the cross, off of the grace of God, and we have lost sight of our utter desperation for the presence of God in our lives. You know why? Because we think we got this. But the cross says, you don't got this. You really don't. Gang, prayer is knowing that you need God's help and believing by grace, through faith, that God is able and he is willing and wanting to help. That's what prayer is. Man's word, if we can get our mind wrapped around that, it would transform our prayer life. It really would. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, or a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now verse 7. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now you see, on the initial reading of this, some of you might be tempted to think, Is that what prayer is like? Is, is, is Jesus saying that when I pray, God the Father is some kind of like old man asleep and grumpy, just kind of like needing you to wake him up and give him a minute to put his like miracle ears in and turn them on so he would actually hear me when I pray? Is that who God is? Is that what God is like? Is that what prayer is like? Is that what Jesus is teaching? No, of course not. Of course not. Now, maybe you're like me and you're kind of feeling this and you're like... You're one of those people who despise the person who doesn't respect the nap, right? Like, you get that, right? Like, you just, you just, those kind of people, like, here's a question that you should never ask a person, by the way, this is free of charge, by the way. You should never ask a person who's sleeping, are you sleeping? (laughs) Just don't, like, figure out another way to get that information, please, please, as someone who loves taking naps, like, don't, don't do that, all right? But you have to remember here, this story is being told in the context of first century Jerusalem. The houses were not like they are today. In fact, they they were just really one big, large room. We have a, a picture of it there, often just kind of divided up into certain living spaces. It wasn't like, it wasn't enclosed with doors and like insulated walls that kind of deadened the sound or anything like this. And this, and this guy is knocking relentlessly on the door. And the guy inside is like, are you serious? Bro, can you quit the knocking on my door? Do you know what time it is? You've already waken me up. You're gonna, if you keep going, you're going to wake the kids up. You're going to wake my wife up. And it's just really not going to be good for me, all because of your lack of bread. But look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up, And give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That word impudence, it's a big word. Um, I don't know if you ever, ever have said that word before. It basically means persistence, boldness, cockiness, arrogance. One translation, well, I won't even go there. You can look it up. I mean, it's, it's amazing. All these kind of words. In other words, this guy won't quit. He just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. He's that desperate. 
So Andrew, are you saying that Jesus is saying that when we pray, we're just to keep knocking and knocking and knocking and asking and asking and asking because God is just, again, a tired old man up there in heaven that needs you to wake him up? No, that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Remember, parable means to cast alongside or to come alongside. And some of our parables, especially the ones that Pastor Brandon has been teaching on, it starts off kind of like this. The kingdom of God is like. And he talks about it. This one he's saying, prayer is not like. What Jesus is actually teaching here is that if by your own persistence, You can convince this neighbor who's got a bunch of excuses not to help you. If you get him to give you what you desperately need, then how much more will your tender heavenly father be willing and wanting to help you? How much more? See, you're starting off in debt with your neighbor. But when you go to your heavenly father, who has saved you by grace through faith in his son Jesus... You are starting off in righteousness. You are starting off of his child. You are starting off in love and grace and mercy. Not in debt, because the debt's been paid. Jesus has paid that for you in full. So why not come to him and seek your father? See, the whole point of this parable is how much more How much more? And we know this because it keeps going on in verses 9 and 10. I tell you this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now these three words, ask, seek, and knock, don't mean just one time. No, they mean to ask and ask again, and keep on seeking, and never stop knocking. In Greek, they're they're known as present active imperatives. It means, are are you asking, asking, and asking? Are you seeking, seeking, and seeking? Are you knocking, knocking, and knocking? Jesus is inviting you to Now listen, this blows me away. Because I grew up in a house with four older brothers and a dad named Thor. And if the words, ask me again, came out of my dad's mouth, we knew immediately to stop. Do you know what I'm talking about? Ask me again. Ask me again. Like, you ask me again, right? Like, ask me again and you're going to, you know... But yet, our Heavenly Father says, ask me again. Ask me again. Ask me again. Ask me again. Never stop asking. Keep seeking. Continue to knock. And then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus goes on to say, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? What dad would do that? Gang, what dad in the world would do that? In other words, gang, Jesus is saying here, God the Father will never give you anything that will harm you. Never, ever. The Bible actually teaches in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And listen, sometimes we are asking for stuff, right, that we truly don't need. Do you know what I'm talking about there? 
And what kind of loving God would give us stuff that we would be duped into thinking that that stuff satisfies, causing us to take our eyes off of the only one who truly satisfies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to put your hopes and your desires in anything else that causes you to take your eyes off of him because that's idolatry. And our Heavenly Father loves you too much to fuel your idolatry. And so you know what also is implied here? In verses 11 and 12, it says, What father among you, if he asks for a, a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? You know what's also being implied here? If you ask for a serpent or a scorpion, your heavenly father is not going to also give you a serpent or scorpion. Because sometimes there are people who pray for things that whether knowingly or unknowingly will harm them or others around them. And again, According to Matthew 6, 8, our Father knows exactly what's best for you even before you ask him. That's how amazing he is. Look at verse 13 as we close real quick. I love this because this is how you know the Bible doesn't pull any punches. This is amazing to me. God is a straight shooter here. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Parents, do you realize that you're evil? Let's just stop and close right there. Um, and kids, pipe down. Don't, don't be like, yeah, finally somebody's on my side. Like, good for you, Pastor Andrew. Thank you. High five. No. Because um, they had you. <laughs> and the truth is, evil creates evil. It's just further proof that we're all evil. And it says this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? You see, gang, the point is this. If your cranky neighbor, which is every normal neighbor, and every parent who's evil, which is every normal parent, if they can give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father provide for you? So again, the point of the parable is not just keep praying and praying and praying and praying. Jesus isn't telling us to be like that kid that's like, Mom, Mommy, Mom, Mommy, Ma, Ma, Dad, Daddy, Dada, Dad, Teacher, 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 Teacher. Not like that. The point of the parable is who God is. Because if you know him as your heavenly father, then it changes everything about the way in which you pray. You know why? Because parents, your kids don't have a problem asking you for anything at any time, do they? Right? Think about this. Think about your kids when they come into your bedroom at night, especially if they're young. And they're like, Mom, I want a, I want a glass, of, glass of water. Johnny, it's like two in the morning. You passed the bathroom and you walked right through the kitchen to get here. Do it yourself. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't see it as an interruption on you. They don't see it as an imposition. You know why? Because you're their mom. You're their dad. They have a need and they know that you are the meter of that need. So they come to you because you're your child and you're their parent. And so Emmaus wrote, if you really knew God as Father, and I'm not just talking cognitively, I am talking about your loving, caring, providing, sustaining Father, then no matter what your prayer life looks like, no matter what words you use, no matter what your technique is, you'll know how to pray and what to pray for. You will. And let's not rush by that last phrase in verse 13. It says this, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? To which you're like, uh, I didn't ask for the Holy Spirit. 
<laughs> I asked for a job. I asked for finances. I asked for a date. I asked for an acceptance into college. I didn't ask for the Holy Spirit, which again is what Jesus is driving at here over and over again. The prize of prayer is not what you're praying about. No, the prize of prayer is who you're praying to. That's the prize of prayer. You see, what you need in your moments of desperation is not to recite the Lord's prayer. What you need is to receive the Lord of this prayer and of every other prayer. And praise God, he is always available and he is always accessible because when Jesus was on the cross, the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn in two, giving sinners like you and like me direct access to a hallowed God by grace through faith in him. Praise God that he has given us that access. Praise God that he invites us to ask him and to keep seeking him and to never, ever Stop knocking. He is a good, good father. Amen? Amen. You think on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a needy people. And we need you to impress this truth upon our hearts and minds all the more as we leave this place today because we might confess with our mouth right now that that's true, but in our hearts, everything is going to bombard us in this life and it's going to push up against us and we're going we're to be faithless and we're not going to be faithful to that confession. But Lord, in the midst of all of this, we give you praise because even in our faithlessness, you remain faithful and you forgive us our sins over and over and over again, though our sins are many, your grace is greater. You are so good to us. Lord, we give you thanks, and we give you praise. And it's your name we pray.